Welcome back to the Desert Springs Church podcast. It exists to supplement the ministry and growth of the body here at Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew. I'm here with Chase and Ryan once again. And this week, coming off of uh, a sermon that you're going to preach this Sunday, Chase, as we wrap up our series in the book of Galatians, Mm -hmm. which congratulations, by the way, to both of you and and Caleb and others who have have participated in preaching and helping us understand this book better. I'd like to thank Paul. We can thank, uh, shout out to Paul. He started it. Mm -hmm. Way to go, Paul. Way to go, Holy Spirit. Right. Um, So we're thankful for that book and and the work that it's done in the life of our church these many weeks. Um, But one topic that you'll mention in this uh, Sunday sermon is Israel of God Mm -hmm. and what that could mean. There has been this, this theme of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, children of God throughout the book of Galatians. And so we thought we'd take some time in this episode to discuss the relationship of Israel and the church, or ethnic Israel and the church, and the promises to uh, Israelites and uh, that people group in the Old Testament, and then what has changed, if anything, and how it looks now in the New Testament or New Covenant. So we're uh, going to discuss this, and disclaimer right off the bat— this is a this this would fall squarely in the third order bucket totally of mm-hmm. doctrinal issues yeah. with our church, and so this is not required for membership of our church. We are not adding to the statement of faith by anything that uh, that we say uh, specifically about the relationship of you Israel. You can disagree and, the church. and still be a member. That's in right. Our church. There, there is. We're going to talk about in this. Uh, our first question: different systems, and if you hold to a different system than either of the three of us, um, that's okay. Um, we actually have difference and uh, deference on our elder board mm-hmm. uh, on this very topic. So you don't even have to uh, agree on this to be an elder of our church because this. Uh, we don't believe that this is central to the gospel and what it means to be a Christian, um, or even central to what it means to be a member of Desert Springs Church, but. It is a big issue, and it is it is uh, a big topic that is woven throughout Scripture yeah. of God's people and God's plan for His people. Right. First, Israel, and then and then now more so we see in the New Testament, the church. And it's almost impossible to preach God's Word faithfully and not show your hand uh, as the preacher or teacher. And so I'm sure that comes out from time to time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people can tell where Chase or I or others come from. Um, and so that's unavoidable, yeah. and so we'll do that in this podcast. We'll yeah. kind of freely say what we believe. Yeah. Um, again, going back to that issue of deference and yeah. difference. That it's okay to disagree with us. And this this topic does overlap quite a bit with eschatology, with right. end times yeah. and, and view, which we all would uh, hopefully agree that it's okay to disagree. Mm-hmm. So we're going to agree to agree and agree to disagree on this topic today, and we've got, uh, Chase has got like 28 pages of notes here for us to get through, so pack a lunch, put it on two times speed, and he- here we go. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, so question number one for you two uh, seminary nerds, what are the different systems for understanding the relationship of the church to Israel? Let me, let me read that one again. It's a long question. What are the different systems for understanding the relationship of the church to Israel. Ryan, why don't you give us some general thoughts, and then Chase, you can follow up with some more specifics about those. Ryan? Yeah, glad to. Uh, so, this is um, 
maybe instead of thinking of just different categories or labels or schools of thought, we can kind of think spectrum. Uh, and then on one end of the spectrum is continuity, a continuity between the Old and New Testament, and discontinuity. That means discontinuity between Old and New Testament yeah. and also the people of God, Israel and the church. Um, and so if you think in terms of these are theological categories, theological approaches, but they're also hermeneutical approaches. They're a way in which we interpret and look at Scripture. That that can help. So Chase is going to give us some of the distinct categories, but if you keep in mind, within a spectrum, these categories represent different points along the spectrum. And even what you were saying hermeneutically, uh, and, and Drew, to your point, that it's okay to disagree on this, we should say none of these hermeneutics fall outside the realm of Orthodox faith, you know, right. these are different. Uh, you know, when we're saying it hermeneutics, we mean like how are you interpreting, especially Old Testament passages and prophecies. Um, and on that spectrum, some people would take what they would call a more literal approach than others, which probably isn't even a helpful word to use because then you're saying somebody else is almost not treating God's word like it's God's word, mm-hmm. which is not what you're saying. But it's um, maybe a spectrum of literalness versus typology or or. Uh, things like that. But to get into the specific systems on the spectrum, so if you say continuity on one side, so there's a continuity between the the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then what's happening with the people of God in that, you would have what, what we call covenant theology, um, has uh, a high degree of continuity, even in the whole scheme of how the Bible is put together, that they really see uh, the Bible is put together with a covenant of works before the fall into sin, and then everything after that is one covenant of grace. Covenant of grace with different manifestations in different ways, but it's really just one big thing that's happening. And in that, they see a lot of continuity between Israel and the Israelites in the Old Testament, and then the church. And they would say really that those are still one one people of God, and so they will even bring in Old Testament categories and apply it to the church. And vice versa. Right. So you'll read Calvin and he'll be talking about the church in Old Testament Israel That's times right. all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's really just one consistent people of God. Um, so that would be, uh, you know, especially we would say Presbyterians mm-hmm. would, would fall very heavily in that. But again, it's a spectrum. And so different people, even Baptistic, you know, believers can can hold to covenant theology. On the other side of that spectrum with discontinuity, uh, the the typical category of that would be what we call dispensationalism. And dispensationalism actually even in how they sort of, if the covenant, covenant theology sees all of redemptive history as one thing, basically, dispensationalism, the name dispensationalism is because they break redemptive history yeah, into dispensations. So, okay. specific epics. Seven or so. Time mm, periods. Yep. Yes, dispensations. Yep. And every one of those dispensations ha- is, they consider it to be like a, a test with us, with a finite revelation of God to that specific epoch of time and uh, and basically disobedience every time, you know, and so that necessitates more revelation culminating in a thousand year millennial reign after the rapture is usually how they interpret that. So dispensationalism, as far as what we're talking about today, sees a lot of discontinuity between the Israelites or the Jewish people and the church, so much so that classical dispensationalists would talk about really two peoples of God. And so Mm. there is the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and then they would say 
with the coming of Christ and the coming of the church, it was like God hit pause on his plans for ethnic for Israel. ethnic Israel. And ethnic Israel right now is in a state of hardening where they are kind of waiting in the wings. Mm. And this epic, this dispensation is the church age. And so everything God's doing now has to do with the church. A parenthesis. It's yep. a parenthesis. parenthesis. That's, yep. Yep. That's exactly where they would say. And then when the rapture happens and the church is taken out of the world, then God's going to turn his attention back to Israel. And he's going to finish the mm -hmm. plan that he started. So you can see a high degree of discontinuity there between Israel and the church, even within the church, because there are some believing Jews. And so this goes to the, the sermon in Galatians 6, that they would interpret the Israel of God in Galatians 6, 16, as referring to believing Jews that are a part of the church. But that, that would be true Israel as distinct from the Gentiles that are in the church, which are just the church. So, gotcha. there's discontinuity okay. even yep. in the New Covenant community. There's Jews and Gentiles, and that distinction yeah. is maintained. Yeah, because of ethnicity. So, right. believing Jews are true Israel. So, that would kind of follow in the logic of Romans 9, not all Israel mm -hmm. are Israel. Yep. So, they would say that, that that's the distinction there, is believing and unbelieving. Ethnic Jews. Ethnic Jews. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, that's, that's kind of the two extreme ends of the spectrum. Right in the middle, you know, and of course, it's always, you know, this middle one. <laughs> the middle way. Uh, the middle way um, is, it's a newer interpretation of these things or maybe a system that's trying to put these things together, and that's called progressive covenantalism. And so, what progressive covenantalism Just does- Just rolls right off the tongue. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's how you get more cred is you make the title really long, the more syllables, the more- Thanks, Steve Wellam. That's right. And that is, yeah, Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry, where it really kind of started with what was called New Covenant Theology. Mm -hmm. So, if you think before there was ever any label called New Covenant Theology, what were guys like, um, well, the biblical theology guys from Australia, Moore Theological College, or D.A. Carson, or Doug Moo, what were they doing in their commentaries? This. Yep. Mm. It just wasn't codified yet. Ah. Like, what do you call it? Well, guys started calling it New Covenant Theology, New, yeah. and that label got a little mushy. So, there's probably some good reason to distance yourself from that label because there's some yeah. odd okay. versions of it out there. And so, the latest attempt to codify it with a name is progressive covenantalism. This and is with insider the, baseball for everybody listening. So, but that's yeah. why no, that's it's good. This is what our dozen This is where it comes from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the progressive and progressive covenantalism refers to the fact that uh, they, rather than seeing all of redemptive history as one big covenant of grace, it is a progression of covenants. And so there, you know, is, we did another podcast on this. So the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and each one of those is progressing in God's redemptive plan for his people, culminating in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so that's really the key is this, in this uh, spectrum of discontinuity and continuity, Progressive covenantalism, I think, maintains the degree of discontinuity that the Bible is highlighting. Even Galatians, there's discontinuity between the covenant with Moses and the covenant and the new covenant, or discontinuity between Abraham and Moses. Seems to be. Yeah. yeah. But it maintains this continuity between uh, the old covenant and the new covenant communities because the New Testament highlights that continuity. It's, it's applying those things. And so, the key for progressive covenantalism is the bridge that maintains the continuity is Jesus himself. So, what they would say is that Jesus is Israel, that he is the only truly faithful 
Israelite. And so, all of the community mm. of God's people finds in its head Jesus Christ. And so, you are in Israel if you are in Christ as the head of Israel. Wow. Yeah, the mm. book of Hebrews would certainly seem to imply as much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, which I think the whole New Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and certainly uh, Galatians. Uh, that's really good. So, uh, you mentioned true Israel. So, let's go down that path a little further with our next section here, guys. So, what's the case for Jesus as the true Israel? He's the true Israelite. Uh, you find this as early in the Gospels as, um, what is it, Matthew 2, out of Egypt I have called my son. So, that's originally spoken of Israel being called out of Egypt in the days of the Exodus. Um, mm. Israel was God's son. Um, well, Matthew applies that to Jesus, and I think rightly so. Uh, another example would be the suffering servant or the just the servant language that you find in Isaiah. At times, that sounds like a nation. At times, that sounds like an individual. Which one is it? Well, there's a bit of mystery there until Jesus shows up and he starts personifying the servant mm. of Isaiah, especially the suffering servant that you see in Isaiah 53. That's really good. So, that would be uh, a lot of uh, in the category of typology, uh, yeah. the things you were mentioning. So, the typology of the Old Testament of those of those roles and categories and even people um, finding their, their fulfillment in one person, in Jesus. Yeah, when we say typology, we mean um, a person or an event or some sort of institution in the Old Testament that has, that's a type that has an anti-type in the New Testament. And, and usually by that, we mean that there's some kind of explicit connection that the New Testament authors are saying the, the anti-type in the New Testament is Jesus. And so, one way or no, another, the New Testament authors, whether explicitly or often, it's a lot more creatively and implicitly in how they've written their books, um, that they are connecting Jesus to this Old Testament type. So, a great example is the tabernacle. That's, mm -hmm. you know, this dwelling place uh, of God with his people. Well, John very clearly is saying the tabernacle is Jesus. Jesus. Um, you can go through all these things, the sacrificial system finds its antitype in Jesus. The Sabbath. The Sabbath, Sabbath the sacrifice. priesthood, the, the kings, the prophets, um, even particular, you know, David, this individual is a type whose antitype is Jesus. And so, if you read the New Testament with those lens, you, you can see, like Ryan was saying with Matthew, Matthew has written his whole gospel basically to scream at you that Jesus is Israel. Mm. Even th the temptation in the wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. 40 days, 40 days, you know, 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. Um, and, and the genealogy in the beginning. Yeah. yeah to clearly, right. right off the bat, say, we're going to connect Abraham and David. Yeah. Abraham and David to Jesus. Yes. Right yes. off the bat. Yeah. Or you read, you know, like we've been reading in uh, Galatians, you know, that, that all of these things that God promised to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus as shadows yeah. and substance. Yeah. If, if, Typology and anti-type is new to is that if that's new language to some, uh, it might just be more familiar to think in terms of shadow and fulfillment. You've probably heard me or others refer to Colossians two that mm -hmm. Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament shadows. Yeah. Well, that's what we're talking about with type and anti-type. And so the big thing is pertains to this conversation is that Israel, the whole nation of Israel, is a type. And Jesus is the antitype. So the whole nation of Israel and everything that you say about Israel finds its fulfillment in this one person, Jesus. And that actually makes sense 
even if you think about Israel with its relationship to Adam and what Adam was supposed to be in the first place, that Israel is, um, is it, there's, there's lots of ways and places where uh, Adam is, Adam and, and his role in the garden is sort of a type with Israel as its anti-type, mm-hmm. you know? So even think about the construction of the temple, it was made to reflect the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And so even in that, the promised land, when it was promised to Abraham, was meant to be like a renewed Eden. So there's these this progression through that story. So in that way that like Paul connects in Romans 5, that Adam was the head of this people that fell. So this one person can represent the whole people Jesus in the same way is the last Adam, and he represents the redeemed people of God. And yeah, all of that has Israel as the type. Yeah. Chase, does this relate to the passage in Galatians? I think it's Galatians 3, um, where where Paul says, uh, referring back to the Abrahamic promises, that they don't say seeds, plural, but seed mm. singular. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that would be an mm-hmm. example of uh, promises given to Israel mm-hmm. as a nation are specified singularly in Jesus, the true seed yeah. of Abraham. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then Paul takes that logic and extends it to the church after Jesus. And he says, then everybody that's in Jesus, everything that you could say about Jesus is then true on the other side of the cross, is true of the whole church. And so, in that way, that's the connection where uh, in Galatians, again, is a great example of this. It's all to do with our union, our being united in Christ, brought into Christ. Anything that you can say of Jesus, you can say of anyone who is united to Jesus by faith. So, if we can say Jesus is Israel, then we would say that anyone that has believed in Jesus mm-hmm. is in the new Israel, the Israel of God. So, that's why it matters that we're talking first about Jesus as the true yeah. Israelite, mm. the true Israel, because now we're talking about faith uniting us to the true Israelite, and so we're going to then be led into who are the people of God these days. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's anyone who has believed in Jesus and been united to Jesus is the people of God, because Jesus was the one person of God, the only one. You know, and you kind of even just think about the Jesus story. Everybody left Jesus but Jesus. There was no one faithful at the cross, except for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like Paul's point at the end of Romans 11, that all have disobeyed. Jews and Gentiles have all disobeyed, and they're all brought in by faith. And so this people of God is a newly constituted people. So that's that's why that's so important that Jesus is the bridge there, because otherwise you do get into that kind of covenant theology weirdness where there's too much, where, where we're kind of saying this is just more Israel. It's too you know, flattened out. It, it is too flattened mm-hmm. out, but Jesus is the center point, the turning point in all of history. Talk about the Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, mm-hmm. and, and how that how that relates to progressive covenantalism. Well, Jeremiah 31, it's verses 31 to 34. It's a key text. Hebrews 8 and following picks it up um, and interacts with it extensively. Um I think most Christians, most Gentile Christians, have no problem thinking that they're in the New Covenant, uh, that the New Covenant's now, that this is the covenant for the church. We'd think of the Lord's Supper as being the cup of the New Covenant Mm -hmm. of Jesus' blood. And so we would think that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are expressing and acknowledging this New Covenant that we're in that was talked about in Jeremiah 31. Well, as it pertains to the people of God— the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31 were addressed to, 
the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, if we're going to take the distinct approach, right, Mm -hmm. the uh, discontinuity approach, we would say, okay, that must be national ethnic Israel, and therefore the new covenant as we think of it today as Gentile Christians, that must not be for us. That must not be Jeremiah 31, but it is. Mm. And so we have to interact with this. We have to somehow understand that what was addressed to and about the house of Judah and the house of Israel somehow includes us Gentile Christians today. And I think it's really telling for how we define and where the parameters are for the people of God today in the New Covenant. Absolutely. And to be fair, some classical dispensationalists were really consistent on this point. And so they said the New Covenant that Jesus instituted at the Lord's Supper was not the New Covenant that Jeremiah was talking about. And right. they say new is just an adjective. So there could uh, be multiple new new covenants. Right. It just means it's a new one. Um, but even, even now, a lot of progressive dispensationalists, as they're called, so... There's progressive covenantalists, there's progressive dispensationalists, and, and so even So, they would now, be less discontinuity, slightly more continuity yep, so on actually, the spectrum? Yeah, they're, they're getting closer. We're getting closer together. So, maybe yeah. in like 20 more years, we'll all just hold hands and agree. Mm, not likely. Um, but, but even, you know, so Daryl Bach and uh, Craig Blazing and guys like that, they, they would say, no, the new covenant is the new covenant. It's yeah. for the church. Um, and, and so, yeah, they kind of have to go back and think about okay, what does it mean that this was to the house of Israel and to Judah, mm-hmm. and yet it now includes the church? And again, I'm reading Hebrews a lot these days. Hebrews 8 and 9 interacts with Jeremiah 31 mm-hmm. yeah. and would certainly uh, seem to imply that, that that is the new covenant, and the ends. better covenant, um, that Christ is the guarantor of. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's written to the church, clearly. I mean, Hebrews yeah. Hebrews is very clearly written to yeah. the church, um, and and you could make the argument in Hebrews that it was maybe written to Jewish Christians mm-hmm. only, but then you come to First Peter, which is another, you know, so yep. read First Peter. First Peter was written to Jews in Asia, or not to Jews, to Christians in Asia Minor. Probably, probably mostly Gentiles. Probably mostly Gentiles, right. But he calls them the elect exiles mm-hmm. of the dispersion. Um, he uses all kinds of language that the Old Testament uses to talk about Israel. Um, Sojourners. Yeah. And then, and then even chapter two. Chapter two is just, I mean, let me read some of this. Uh, he, he calls them the the spiritual house that is being built up. So, mm-hmm. the temple to be a holy, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then he quotes uh, the Old Testament prophets saying, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, saying, essentially calling them part of Zion. The temple. The temple. Um, he says, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's Exodus language right there. So, Peter has no problem applying Old Testament language specifically for Israelites to Gentile, Gentile Christians. Christians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I mean, those are so uniquely Israelitish, if I can make up a word. Uh, so tied to an ethnic people in the Old Testament, and he, as you said, Chase, in Christ, now that's applicable to New Testament Christians, Jew or Gentile, if they're in faith. So, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, 
is this what people would call replacement theology? Has the church now just simply replaced or overwritten Well, let me Israel? start with an answer on that and just say that I don't, I don't actually know anyone who believes in replacement theology and would say that they believe in replacement theology hmm. in those terms. Okay. So, I don't believe, I don't know anyone who does believe that Israel of the Old Testament was replaced by the church. We believe in a progressive covenantalism so that the people of God now, it's a reconstituted reconstituted people of God, which again includes Jew and Gentile. I would say the church doesn't replace Israel. The plan all along was eventually that in Christ there would be a multitude from every nation, tongue, and kindred, and, and people. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the argument in Ephesians 2 and 3, mm-hmm. you know, where, what Paul calls a mystery, saying this was something that was hidden in the Old Testament that was hinted at, but then has been revealed in full in the New Testament, and that um, the people of God was always meant to be comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And so, like in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he, he says, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who is himself our peace and has made us both one. Mm-hmm. And in the next verse, he even makes it more explicit when he says, He's creating in himself one new man in place of the two. So that's why I get the language of reconstituting or the people of God is now consummated in this new body of Jew and Gentile defined no longer by ethnicity but by faith in Christ. So we saw in Galatians in multiple ways, but Paul just makes it so explicit in Ephesians 2 Verse 15, one new man in place of the two. Now, I'm sure someone could misunderstand in place of the two and describe that with replacement, Mm. but I think that there's a better word for it than just replace. And I think that's where Paul's metaphor of the olive tree in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, this whole sustained argument that he has about the relationship of ethnic Jews to the church. And, and his whole point there is, yeah, unbelieving Jews. So, so he thinks of the people of God, Israel, as this tree whose roots go all the way down to Abraham and unbelieving Jews being broken off so that Gentiles can be grafted, grafted in. Yeah. And it's all this focus on the unity of this tree. And what's the basis of the unity? It's the faith that they have that is shared throughout the Old and the New Testaments. But Christ is the one that is the unifying factor in that. But it's one tree, and it's not like it's been replaced. It's it's stressing that continuity, even though branches have been broken off and new branches have been grafted in. A question that comes to mind for me then, Chase, is Romans 11 also says that one day God will regraft in mm. Israel, and he says, and thus all Israel will be saved. That's yeah. in Romans 11, mm-hmm. 26, yeah. I think. So, what does that mean? Is there a future for Israel, ethnic Israel? Is that what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 when he speaks of there being a 
a, a grafting in that will come later on. Yeah. Well, if what we've been talking about is something where there's room for disagreement on, I think what you think about that is there's especially room for disagreement on that yeah. because it's it's really unclear. It's not clear yeah. what what Paul means by that. You know, other things that he says in Romans uh, eleven verse twenty five, he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So you have to ask, what does partial hardening mean? That can either mean partial, like it affects part of the population at any given moment. So you think the church has always had Jews in it. And even today, Jews are not prevented from repenting and believing in Jesus. Um, But the majority of Jews have not. So is that what partial means? Or is partial speaking temporally? So it's partial... There's going to be overall a hardness on Israel until a later period when that hardening is going to be removed, and then there will be a mass conversion of Jews to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Those are really kind of the two perspectives that you can take on that. And well, I wouldn't a, a further view um, more focused on ethnic Israel would also include uh, the, there's a new temple. The land, sure. So all Israel will be saved, mm-hmm. and yeah. there'll be this Jerusalem-focused, Israelite land-focused plan of God. In often thought of as a a millennium. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know where Drew was saying this all intersects with eschatology as well. So the dispensational hermeneutic, especially, or their you know whole scheme, really depends on a thousand-year millennial kingdom, where they see the prophetic promises made to ethnic Israel as having a physical literal geographic geographic fulfillment, fulfillment. Yeah. you know so they say okay Jesus or uh, God promised Israel promised Abraham this specific land this specific you know Palestine you know a, a clearly bounded geography and he has said that he's going to restore ethnic Israel to that land and so, yeah, the dispensational hermeneutic says, well, if God said that's going to happen, it has to happen that way. Yeah. Um, and would even see that happening in our own uh, dispensation that we're in right now. You know, that they would say 1948 was a really big year for yeah. God's prophecies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one thing I would say in response to that is there's just no mention of land in Romans 11. Well, it seems well, like it's the, about Israel's conversion— Right. right. Yeah. So, so I, I would actually find stronger evidence for the future of a mass conversion of ethnic Israelites in Romans 11 in different verses than verse 26. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you're listening, it's probably helpful to follow along with your Bible open. Um, but earlier verses like 23 and 24 speaks of them, their unbelief coming to an end, and they will be grafted in. That Verse 24, they'll be grafted back into their own olive tree. That sounds like ethnic Israel's future conversion. We don't know whether it's great right. or small, mm-hmm. but I think that is going to, to come in some way. Perhaps it'll be trickling throughout the years. Perhaps it'll be right. an exclamation point at, toward the end of history. Right. But I find in verse 26... Um, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. I actually think all Israel will be saved there has to include Gentiles. I think so. 
that the I mean, all I just Israel, think the language, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Mm. I think it actually unites the people of God into Israel. W- under the label of Israel mm-hmm. in this specific case, not throughout Romans 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. Paul's usually using Israel as a ethnicity there. And that would tie in with the way that I interpret Galatians 6, 16, the Israel of God yeah. is his, uh, you know, I'm saying... This is true. This is a bigger Israel than ethnic right. Israel. This is Israel of faith. Yeah, mm. And that's what Paul's been arguing all through Galatians. Yeah. The reason I think your your take on Galatians 6.16 is right is that's been Paul's point all through Galatians. Right. I don't think he would get to the end of the letter and then divide the people of God yep. up yep. into two different categories. He's been speaking of the oneness right. defined by faith in Christ. I mean, he explicitly says there is no Jew or Gentile for we are all one in Christ. Yeah. It would yeah, it it stretches credulity in my mind that at the very end he would then say there's two different groups here. And he'd be putting a stone in the hands of his opponents and giving yep. them an argument. See, Paul, yep. you, you, you supported our case yep. all, all along. Now, to be fair, someone would say, when he's, if he were separating them out and calling them the Israel of God, what he's saying is the Judaizers are not Israel, even though yep. they're part of Israel, that the true Israel is the one, you know, but still, I would, I'm, I'm with you. Or even everything he's been saying about Abraham throughout Galatians. You know, that we are the offspring of Abraham. Well, who's the offspring of Abraham? Those of faith. Yeah. yeah. Galatians you know, 3, 7. That's, uh, I, I think he, he's being very, very clear in that. And it, you know, so you, you kind of brought up the land stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, is Paul thinking about a geographic stretch of land at all in any of his letters? I mean, does that ever seem to come up in the New Testament, this hope that right. the people would would get a land promise? But, but in uh, Romans chapter 4... Paul does say this about Abraham, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul is, I think, heightening the land promise that God made to Abraham. I think he's saying that land promise was another type, that it wasn't about this stretch of land. Hmm. It was about the new promised land, the mm. new heavens and the new mm. earth, the new garden of Eden right. that I'm going to bring about at the end. And guess who gets to inherit that? Yeah. The new Israel. Yeah. And that reminds me of Acts 15. So at the Jerusalem council, when they're debating this really important issue of whether Gentiles need to be circumcised to be included in the people of God, James stands up and he quotes Amos 9, 11, Mm-hmm. Amos 9.11, I will rebuild, this is God speaking, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. So if you're just sitting in the days of Amos, you might think, okay, this is the land. This is a building. This is a temple in a king's palace. And in all that establishment Mm -hmm. that God had in the glory days of King David, Um, God's saying there, I will rebuild it. What, what's James doing? He's taking that verse and proving that this is happening right now in what? In the Gentiles being converted yep. simply by faith, not with circumcision yep. also. Yep. Excellent, guys. Um, so why is this conversation important? Why, why does it matter? Um, it seems like there's a lot of disagreement. Maybe there's uh, less than desired clarity on some of these, mm-hmm. some of these issues. Uh, for us, but but why is it important that we we wrestle with these things and discuss 
this topic as believers? Well, first, I think it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I really do. It's God's like, word. It, it's yeah. God's word, and yeah. and this this scheme, Ryan. We were talking about this before that it's kind of like you've got all the puzzle pieces on the table, mm. and then you start putting them together, and then it's like, oh my gosh, this all fits, you know. So yeah. you're reading the Old Testament, and sometimes it can be confusing and mystifying. But then when you can kind of step back and and see in the New Testament how all of those pieces are fitting together, looking forward still, you know, these, these things have, have started in Christ, but they're not finished yet, but they just give us so much hope about what we're looking forward to. And right in the middle of all of it is Jesus and his cross. And mm-hmm. it just, it should lead you to worship. Yeah. Yeah. It's Christocentric, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it unifies the people of God. I think it has a powerful unifying effect where we don't think in terms of the church being made up of ethnic Jews and the Gentiles, and they're like, you know, people of God A and people of God B, or um, or second class citizens in in the kingdom. So I think it has a unifying effect. And to go back to kind of what we started saying is, it's God's word, it's His plan. We should know it. We should marvel at it. We should exalt in it and give Him praise and glory for the marvelous intricacies of it. And as you said, Chase, I totally agree. It helps us put our Bibles together. It's like there are some floating puzzle pieces in the Old Testament. We weren't sure exactly how those would fit. And now in Christ, he's the interpretive key. Mm -hmm. All the puzzle pieces click and you see this majestic picture of his plan. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, I've, uh, you guys have given me a lot to think about, and uh, I, ho- I hope it's been edifying to those listening. Uh, before we go, do you guys have any resources? If you were to give one or two resources for somebody to do some further reading and digging on these topics, what would you guys suggest? Well, we mentioned the the, the label Progressive Covenantalism, and there's a book by that uh, title. It's edited by uh, Wellam and Parker. So that's a, a great book that goes through some of these theological issues and biblical theological issues. If and, you were listening and a question came up, what, what about this? Yeah. There's probably a chapter about it in that book. And if not, then there's another book called 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. That's in a series of books uh, on 40 questions of, you know, fill in the blank. There are all kinds of great resources there in, the, in that series of 40 questions. And the one, 40 questions about biblical theology, I think just came out mm-hmm. and is very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Usually has about six pages of an answer for one of those questions, and they're really good. If you're interested in reading perspectives that were not expressed so much uh, between the three of us, there's a book by Charles Ryrie called Dispensationalism Today. That's kind of the you know, classic text on, it's pretty accessible, just about what is this dispensationalism? How do you put all, that all together? How does that relate to premillennialism and the rapture? Um, and then I mentioned Bach. Uh, he's, he's got one, Progressive Dispensationalism, so you could check those out. Another one is by Merkel, who's a um, professor at Southeastern Seminary, called uh, Discontinuity to Continuity, colon, a survey of dispensational and covenant theologies. So that would be a good book that would lay out the different positions even-handedly, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or another discontinuity and continuity, or is it continuity and discontinuity by I Feinberg? Know. I can't remember. <laughs> by Feinberg. Uh, that does the same thing. And actually, every chapter picks a topic and then has two people from different sides uh, engaging right. with it. And for me, I'll just say read the book of Hebrews. Um, <laughs> and if you guys have any questions, you can reach out to uh, Chase or Ryan or myself, and then I'll just forward you on to Chase and Ryan. 
uh, with any questions about this topic. If you have any other questions about our podcast um, or any questions for us uh, about our church, you can email info at dscabq.com. Um, we're thankful for this opportunity to continue doing these podcasts. We're thankful for you guys listening. So uh, that's all for us to, today, um, and we'll keep uh, keep this thing going. Yeah? Hope to. You want to do yeah. another one? Sure. Well, Lord willing. Why not? Lord willing. Well, <laughs> that's all for now. Let's keep spreading God's glory broader and deeper. <laughs>